Uh, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. We have Bibles to pass out. Someone will come and they will give you a Bible. Um, and you can keep your hands raised. I know it's kind of awkward. We normally go through books of the Bible here, but we're going through a series right now. So if you don't own a Bible, you can keep that Bible. But if you do own one, just put it back on the side or back at the Connect desk on your way out. Okay? All right. Uh, will someone... Uh, Christian, sorry, he's running over there. Christian, will you throw up that picture for me, actually? Are you, is someone at Proper's there? Will you click the picture that says Amelie picture on it? There she is. That's the right reaction, because that's my daughter. Um, this is Amelie when she is, like, around one. I'm just going to let that set the stage for the story I'm about, about to tell, okay? So I used to be a teacher, and I used to get summers off. And so last summer, I took... Amelie, sweet little beautiful Amelie, to the park, and we're playing on a playground. And this particular park was was near uh, like a preschool. And so, uh, as we're playing, a preschool class comes out and kind of starts playing alongside Amelie. And I'm, I got to kind of stay close to the playground because she was like that little still, maybe a little bit older than that. And she's kind of falling, balancing. She doesn't have depth perception. She'll just like walk right off the stairs or the steps of the playground. And she's standing there, and this little girl comes up, and she's about four years old. And her and Amelie have never met. They've never interacted. And this little girl looks at Amelie, and she says, you're dumb and annoying. And I go, wait, what was that? My baby's not dumb. And I said, what did you say? And she goes, she's annoying me, and she's dumb. And I was like, okay, time to commit a felony. All right. All right. I'm just kidding. She's not buried in that sandbox. Um, uh, and I said, I said to her, I go, why are you so mean, little girl? And she goes, because she's annoying. And I was like, oh, my gosh. And I go, you are so mean. And I'm, like, trying to get her teacher here. And I'm just like, she is mean, okay? (laughs) Take care of her. And I just took Amelie, and I left. And I was just kind of left with this question of why is this little girl so mean? I'm just left wondering why is there this evil thing in this little girl where she is just mean for no reason to my daughter? And we're, to, we're going through a series called Question Christianity right now. And we've got to the end of our series. And today we're going to explore kind of just what my heart was even crying out in that moment. But we're going to be answering the question of evil. More specifically, we're going to be answering, why does God allow evil to exist? Why does God allow evil to happen? And so that's what we're going to be exploring today. I do want to make a disclaimer. This is a very difficult question to answer. It's been answered in all kinds of ways for the last thousands of years. And so this is not going to be perfect, okay? I'm not some great philosopher or theologian. I'm, I'm going to do my best, though. And, and, and so this question is often, when you're talking to someone that opposes Christianity or doesn't want to believe in Christianity, they will often say, I don't know if I can get behind a God who, who, doesn't, who allows evil? Who allows evil? You know, they'll say things like, how, why, did God, why did God not stop the Holocaust? Why did God allow the Holocaust to happen? And as Christians, we're going, well, yeah, why, why did God allow the Holocaust to happen? That doesn't, we, and because we, we present this picture from the Bible of God being this good, loving God who hates evil. And so it's hard for us to understand 
how could this God allow evil? How could the God of the universe who hates evil allow it? And I think this question for us is not just philosophical, but it's emotional and it's a personal. Because we might get behind the philosophy of asking, okay, how can God allow evil? Why does God allow evil? But it becomes very personal, personal because I think we say, man, how can I trust a God who can stop evil but doesn't? I got that from Mike Wilkerson, who, who wrote this book called Redemption. And so how can we trust a God who has the power to stop evil and suffering but doesn't? And so traditionally, this, these questions are answered with something called theodicies, okay? Theo for God and Odyssey, I don't know. Um, theodicies, okay? And theodicies are these proofs of, for God that he exists even though evil exists as well. Okay, so traditionally, that's how people answer the problem of evil. And there's two main ones, and I think they're good and they're helpful, but I don't think they take us all the way there. And so the, the, the first theodicy that you've probably heard a lot about is something called the free will argument. Okay, so this is the idea that God allowed evil to exist in order that we could have free will, in order that we could choose God and not be robots and, and, and just... Uh, doing whatever he's puppet mastering, right? And so I think that's somewhat helpful because we are responsible for our actions. But I think where it breaks down is I, I don't know if free will is always that important. Okay, let's take my daughter again, Amelie. She runs into the street. I'm not going, hey girl, that's your free will, get hit by a car, right? I'm gonna pick Amelie up, grab her, put her in my arms and protect her. Right? Or if Amelie is about to go punch one of her siblings, if she had a sibling, I would stop her fist and say, no, that's not going to happen. Her, in that moment, her free will doesn't matter to me. And it's hard for me to believe that in every instance with God that, that our free will matters to him. And so that one kind of partially tells the story, but I don't think it gets us all the way there. The next theodicy is something called the punishment theodicy. And the punishment theodicy is that God allows evil to exist because he is punishing humankind for their rebellion. That he's punishing us for our sin, for our rebellion towards him. And again, that's helpful because God does want to punish sin. God doesn't like sin. He doesn't like evil. But again, where this theodicy breaks down a little bit is that evil sometimes is so random. Or at least it feels so random. Right, where we'll see people who seemingly good by human standards, who are following God or, or doing whatever else we think is good, experience great amounts of evil in their life. And so if, it, if the punishment theodicy is really what proves the existence of evil in God, then I think we have to say, then why do people experience evil in so many different kinds of ways and it doesn't seem to really balance out correctly? And so again... Those are the two big theodicies that we've heard, the two big proofs for, for the existence of, of evil and a good, loving God at the same time. And as we move forward, my hope is that we can look at how does the Bible answer this question of why does God allow evil? Okay, if you're hearing those theodicies, they really helped you in your life, and that's how you answer it, that's great. But I want to look at Specifically in Job, how God answers this problem of evil existing alongside a good and loving God. And so we're going to go through the book of Job today. 
And we're going to look at five lessons that we have about evil and God. Okay, this, again, this topic is so complex, it's so complicated, that I hope each lesson kind of gives us a little bit more of the picture of why there is evil alongside a good and loving God who hates evil and can stop it. And so after we look at those lessons in Job, we're going to take some time and we're gonna, uh, I'm going to tell you why you, still, why you can trust a God who has the ability to stop evil but doesn't. So turn with me, uh, Job chapter 1, if you can, and we'll be in verse 1. Job chapter 1, verse 1. And this, so just so you know a little bit about Job, Job is, uh, no one's quite sure where it, it lines up in the Old Testament. No one's not like, is it after David? Is it before David? Is it around Moses' time? When is it? No one's quite sure. Okay, there's some ideas there, but so this is kind of just a one-off story where I think God is taking time to teach us about evil and suffering. So verse 1 says this, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, and 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. And that kind of sets up the scene of our character that we're going to be talking a lot about today. Job is this guy who, who has all this wealth, who fears God, and if, if we read down to the rest of the passage, what we see is Job... Uh, loves God so much that he consecrates his children to him and he makes sacrifices all the time to God about for his sins, whether or not he, he sinned, it seems like. And so God was a good, God-loving man. By human standards, he was a good guy. Okay? And so I think that's what the writer of Job is trying to set up for us. Let's hop down to verse 6. Verse 6. Now, there was a day... When the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Wait, what? Like, you, you get to this verse, and you're like, this story is getting weird, right? Okay, so there's Job, and now God is just hanging out, and the sons of God come to God, and now Satan just rolls up as well. The devil just rolls up, and he's hanging out with God, okay? To give us a little clarity, that phrase, sons of, doesn't mean literal sons. It was often used back then to associate yourself to a king or a leader or something. So some, some might say sons of that king or sons of that king. And so, there's, so these guys, these sons of, are part of God's group, so they're probably angels. That, that's what we think. So they're probably angels hanging out with God, and Satan rolls up. And here's what happens in verse 7. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From growing to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him in his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his, his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, 
All that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And, and the story just, it did get weirder, right? Satan and God are hanging out. God, God essentially is like, hey, what have you been up to, Satan? Right? And Satan's like, just walking around. And then God, out of nowhere, just says, have you thought about my servant Job? Have you, have you noticed him? He's upright. He's, he, he's blameless. And Satan goes, yeah, of course he is. You give him everything. He's rich. He's got a mansion. He's got, I heard about his 500 donkeys earlier in the story. Come on, God. He, if you took those things away, I don't think he would follow you. Of course he can follow you in the good. I don't think he can follow you in the bad. And I think from that little passage, I think we get our first two lessons about God and evil. And the first lesson is this. Evil and suffering is not always a result of punishment. Evil and suffering is not always a result of punishment. Right? A lot of times, I think our inclination is when we see someone going through something, we might not say it was their sin, but we might judge their actions. And we might say, hey, their actions got them to this place. And so we, we, we kind of think maybe, or I know for me personally, when I experience evil and pain and suffering, sometimes my first thought is, is God putting me in some sort of divine timeout? Right? Is God trying to totally change something about me because I've been living wrongly? But here in the story, we see Job, he was blameless before God because he made sacrifices to God all the time. He followed God. He feared God. And so Job is not going to experience evil because of anything he did. So evil is not done as divine punishment. All right, the second lesson is this. God does not allow evil to go unchecked. All right, God does not allow evil to go unchecked. If you look at the story, right, at the end, Satan's like, let me take all his stuff away. And God says, okay, you can do that, but don't touch him. Don't physically touch Job. So God, in those moments where, where evil is happening, God is not letting it go completely unchecked. There is, God is protecting, I think, humanity. The idea in the Bible, if you want to put on your, uh, you know, uh, your theologian's hat on right now, the idea in the Bible, this theological idea, is called something called common grace. And it's this idea that God loves the world so much that humanity, when they experience goodness— it's because simply God loves them. And it's for everyone. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian or you're not a Christian. Everyone can experience good things like medicine or good food or uh, safe places to live. Everyone can experience those things because of God's common grace. Now, if God took away his common grace, it would look bad. Right? One of my favorite TV shows is The Walking Dead. All right? Anybody watch The Walking Dead in here? Cool. Anyway, so Walking Dead, Randy, uh, me and Randy email about it. And uh, on The Walking Dead, the scene is it's zombie apocalypse. There's no more government. Everybody's just wandering around in the south and killing each other, right? And what you get to see is this picture of humanity where they just get bad. 
where they just kill each other and do all sorts of unspeakable things to each other. And I like the show because it shows the heart of human being so selfish and evil. And these people, without a government over them, they do whatever they want for the most part. Now, God, now they're, they, they kind of have a conscience, and, and so some of them don't do as many bad things. And I would, I would argue that if God took away his common grace, humankind wouldn't even have a conscience. Like, this world would look worse than The Walking Dead. Like, it would just be pain and evil, and we probably would have just, you know, nuked all ourselves by now. But because of God's common grace, he put it in us to know the law in our heart, to know between right and wrong. And so God does these things so that evil does not go unchecked, so that evil can't do whatever it wants to do. So those are our first two lessons. Evil is not a result of punishment for us, and God does not allow all evil to go unchecked. Now what happens next in the story is, is Satan does go and he attacks Job. Right, he takes away all his livestock systematically. He uses some uh, groups, some, some gangs of people, and they go and they just kill all the livestock and all but one servant because one servant gets away in each of these situations and lets Job know what happened. And so all of Job's wealth is destroyed. All of Job's wealth is destroyed. And then his kids are all hanging out at his oldest son's house, all ten of them. And wind comes, and it knocks the house down, and every one of Job's children are killed. And Job is left with nothing, or very little. And we see Job's reaction to all this in verse 20. Verse 20 says this, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, naked I come from my mother's room, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Did you know that that's where that song comes from? Blessed be the name of the Lord, yeah, right? It comes from Job. It comes in a crazy context where Job just lost all his kids, Right? I'm losing my mind because a girl called my girl dumb, right? Job loses his kids. Mysteriously, he has no idea. And what does he do? He falls in worship before God and he says, Blessed be the name of the Lord. And I think we see lesson three about God and evil right in verse 22. And it says this, In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Or charge God with wrong. So lesson three is this. God does not do evil. God does no evil. That is lesson three. Okay? God doesn't do evil. He is not responsible for evil. I think it's easy for us to put God on trial and say, God, you, why are you doing this? Why are you allowing this? But here in the Bible, we see that God is saying, that's that's not me. I'm not the one doing this. It's hard to balance, though, because he is allowing Satan to do these things to Job. But God does not do evil. Whomever does the evil is the one doing the evil. All right, Satan does the evil. Humankind does evil. We see in a lot of other places in Scripture, the Bible telling us that humans are responsible for a lot of the evil in the world. 
And, and the rest of Job, it, it actually only gets worse. Satan goes to God again and he says, hey, you know, and God says, see, he's, he's still following me. He's still loving me. And Satan says, well, yeah, of course. You haven't let me touch him physically. You haven't let me mess with him yet. And God says, okay, you can touch him physically, but don't kill him. Don't kill him. Again, showing that God does not let all evil go unchecked. And Satan goes and uh, he attacks Job and Job gets these sores all from the bottom of his feet to the top of his head. And he's just in so much pain and he's just lying in some ashes, it says. And his wife comes to him and just says, why don't you just curse God and die? And Job has just a broken pot shard. His sores are so bad, he's just rubbing it all over his body because that's the only uh, relief he can get. And he's lying in the ashes, and he's depressed. And three of his friends come along, and they sit with him. And they sit for seven days. And their names are Eliphaz, Zophar, and Bildad. And they're sitting there, and after seven days, Job speaks. And Job is depressed. And Job is just like, man, I wish I was never born, essentially. And Job goes on and on and, how, and, and, and curses his own life. And his friends begin to get in this conversation with Job. And the conversation, have you ever had a conversation where you just walk away and you just feel bad after? You're like, I, I didn't cuss or anything. I, don't, I didn't say, call anybody names. But you just feel like you had a bad conversation. That's what these, these people are doing for about 30 chapters. And so they're having this conversation where they're just having a bad conversation. And, and they're not saying the right things, but they're all trying to be smart and prove themselves. And essentially, they're all just trying to blame Job. They're trying to go, hey, man, you sinned something. You did something wrong. That's why you're experiencing this pain. But we've read the beginning of Job. We know the backstory. Job actually hasn't done anything wrong. You know? And so... They're going on and on, and then this young man, Elihu, he comes up. That's his real name. He comes up, he hears them, and he kind of just is like, you guys, come on. Stop it. Stop trying to justify yourselves. Look to God. And so after this conversation that goes on for 30 chapters, God finally speaks in chapter 38. And so as Job is wondering and cursing in his life, And his friends are like, it's your fault. God finally speaks to Job. And I'm going to read the first 13 chapters, or verses. That would be a while, huh? I'm going to read the first 13 verses because I think it's poetic, and I think it's beautiful, and I think God wants to speak this to us in the midst of our suffering and the evil we experience. It says this, "Then, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have the understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band? And prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far shall you come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. 
Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? I'm going to stop there. And so God, out of this whirlwind, just begins to speak very poetically to Job. And he just asks him, were you there when I created the earth? Were you there? Do you know how I keep the ocean from running all over the place? He, he goes on and he says some funny things. He says, do you know how the goats give birth? Right? He says, do you know, are you the one that lets the donkeys roam free? And, and he says all of these things to Job on and on for four straight chapters. Where he just says, Job, I'm God and you're not. Job, I created the earth and you didn't. Job, I know how the earth exists and you don't. And Job, he responds in chapter 42. And this is what he says. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. In this conversation with Job and God, I think we see our fourth lesson about God and evil. And our fourth lesson is God does not always give us an answer for why he allows evil. And that's okay. Okay, God does not always give us an answer, and he seldom does, for why he allows evil, and we should be okay with it. Right, we know that God is good. We know that he is loving And if he's going to allow evil to exist, he must have a reason for it. And just because us finite humans can't come up with a reason for why God would allow evil, that doesn't mean there is no reason. It just means God is not sharing that reason with us. And that's okay. We need to look to God like Job said and say, man, I am talking about things too wonderful for me to know. I, 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 I speak about things I do not know about. Right? If you go back through those verses, we can probably explain some of these things with science. But we can't explain how did God just create water out of nothing. We can't explain how God created this whole universe. We can't explain God. And so we should not ask God to explain himself to us. And so we have to be okay with this idea that sometimes God does not give us an answer for evil. We have to, even Christian or not, you have to philosophically admit that if there's a God greater and bigger and and created the universe, and you're just a human on earth, that perhaps he has a reason for evil that you can't understand. That perhaps he does. And so that's lesson four. 
God does not always give us an answer for why he allows evil. And that's okay. We see kind of how the story ends in Job in in verse 10 of chapter 42. And it says this, And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed when he had prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And we see our lesson five right there about God and evil. And it's in that verse where it says, And they comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. Maybe you're here, maybe you're a Christian, maybe you're not, and you're just saying, Anthony, I can't believe in a God that allows evil. But that verse right there shows that on some level, God does allow evil. On some level, God does allow evil, and he's more powerful than it. And he could stop it, because he does stop it. He stops it from continuing with Job. He gives Job back everything and more. And so our fifth lesson is God does, in some ways, allow evil, even if we can't explain why. And I think we get to the end of Job, and we hear these five lessons about evil, and it might help us understand how the Bible answers this question of God allowing evil. But I think we're still left feeling like, man, how can I trust that God? How can I trust a, a God who, who, who could stop evil or my suffering but chooses not to? At first, I, I kind of get a, a little bit more philosophical. First, I would just say, at what level should he stop evil? Okay, at what level? You know, Jesus comes onto the scene who we believe is God, and Jesus says, our thoughts are evil. Just our thoughts are evil. Like, if you call someone a fool, you can go to hell. Jesus says that. Shoot. (laughs) So should God make our heads explode (laughs) the first time we call someone a name? The first time we think something bad about someone? I don't know. But I'm just saying, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you're like, that's my problem. God should stop all evil if he exists. I would say then all our heads would explode because we all commit evil in his eyes. Maybe you're sitting here and you're just like, Anthony, I can't believe in this God. I can't believe in this God who allows evil, so I'm, I'm not going to believe in God. And I just kind of want to push into that. I want to say, man, if this, this whole world, this whole universe is just random and godless then maybe evil doesn't exist either. Evil and good just become what you like and what he likes or she likes or doesn't like. It's just something we come up with on our own. And so if you you don't want to believe in a God, then, then maybe you shouldn't believe in evil. You should just believe, you know, the strong survive. But I still think, Christian or not in here, we're left with this feeling of how can I trust this God? How can I trust this God who has the power to stop evil, but he doesn't? How can I, we've all been here and we've all experienced great injustices to our lives and we've sat wondering, where is God in this? And here's how I think you can trust the God of the Bible 
who, who chooses not to stop evil sometimes. And it, this is how. Is he lets evil happen to himself. Okay? Today is, is Palm Sunday. It's a Sunday we celebrate Jesus walking into Jerusalem and people laying palms down before him and praising him and saying, Hosanna in the highest. They're praising Jesus. Now the Bible says Jesus is God. Okay, so that's what we believe. So Jesus is God. He's walking into Jerusalem. He's walking towards his death. And he knows it. And just a few days after, he's, he's just praised one of his best friends. Maybe it's not a best friend, but someone that he's essentially been living with for three years. Betrays him. Turns him over to authorities. I don't know if you've ever been betrayed before, but it's a terrible feeling. When a friend betrays you. So Jesus is God, the only innocent being in the universe. And he's sitting there and he lets evil be done to him by his friend Judas. He could have stopped it, but he lets it be done to him. So then a bunch of guys basically jump Jesus and they take him to trial and they spit on him and they say false accusations against them. And they slap him and they just mock him for hours. More evil being done to Jesus, a God who doesn't deserve it. And then his people turn him over to, to Rome, and Rome takes him, and they can't really find fault with him, but they're like, let's beat him to death anyways almost. And so they beat him within an inch of his life, and he's sitting there, beat and, and this guy, Pilate, just wants to let him go. But he does something evil to Jesus. He says, no, I'm not going to let you go even though you're innocent. And Jesus says, all right, that's fine. And then they make Jesus beat, bloody, put on this crown of thorns, digging into his head. And he has to carry this cross up to where they're going to kill him. You know, I'm going to be wandering off, right? Like, you know, when Jesus drops the cross, I bet he's like, man, just someone else, please carry this. Because he's experiencing all this evil being done to him. Then he gets to the top of this little mountain or hill where he's going to be crucified. And you know what? They normally tie people up to crosses. They say, forget this, let's nail him in. And they nail him into this cross, and the nails are strong enough that he's holding there, hung by the nails, dying, bleeding out. Man, that's bad enough. So much evil done to him. And as he sits there, people walk by, and they say, you're the worst. You're not really a god. If you're god, take yourself down. Take yourself down if you're a god. And Jesus sits there, And he just lets evil be done to him. And he dies. And he raises three days later. And the reason I say all that, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty, but I'm pretty sure the God of the Bible is the only God in the universe who allows evil to be done to him. And not only that, it's the mechanism by which we're saved. It's the mechanism by which we're saved. So how can we trust? How can we trust a God who can stop evil but doesn't because he didn't stop evil happening to himself? 
right? It's not just like the story of Job, which when you read it, you're like, man, this sounds like God is just playing games with Satan and with us humans. And that's hard to hear. But God came down to earth. He limited himself in the form of Jesus. His son, Jesus came and he saved us and he allowed evil to be done to him. Right? In our story about Job, Job was an innocent man who experienced evil. But Jesus is the true and greater Job because he, he is far more innocent than Job. And he experienced far more evil than Job did. So you can trust God, the God of the Bible, because perhaps he has some reasons for allowing evil that you can't understand. And he's a God that's not just allowing evil to be done to us while he sits on high and watches and talks to Satan. He's a God who allows evil to be done to himself in order to bring us rebellious, sinful creatures who brought evil about, essentially, in order to bring us back to him. That's why you can trust God. So so why does God allow evil? I think I preached a bad sermon. I don't know. Right? I don't, we don't know. And that's basically what the Bible says too. That I think there's certain times where you could kind of figure something out of why he's allowing a particular evil or something. But I think that the Bible constantly says we don't know. He, he has his reasons and they're beyond us. But can we trust a God who can stop it but doesn't? Absolutely. Because he's a God who sits in it with us. He lets evil be done to him. And it's far worse than any evil we could experience because he's good and holy and pure. So this is my challenge to you guys. Reach out to God. Ask God, man, can I trust you? Help me to trust you. Help me to see your word and trust you. Help me to look through the stories of the gospels and see you, God. Help me to realize that you are God worthy of trust, that you are truly good, that you are holy. And then ask God to soften your hearts because often we as, uh, I think, American Christians, we want to put God on trial. We want to say, God, you need to explain this. No, he doesn't. He doesn't need to because he's God. And maybe one day he'll talk to us and tell us that, but I don't know. And so skeptics in here too, I want to encourage you, read the Gospels. Look at them. Ask yourself the question, can Jesus be trusted? Can Jesus be trusted if he is really who he says he is? Which is the son of God and God himself. And just say, Jesus, man, I need help trusting you. Help me to realize my place before you. So let us be a people that realize that God is far bigger than any of us. Amen? All right, pray with me. God, thank you for your word. God, this is the, this is the most difficult question for, for me personally, I think, sometimes. To think about when evil is done to me. Why, why do you allow it? When I see evil being done to to children and others, I just say, why do you allow it? How could this be? And then, God, we get to your word, and your word essentially says, you may never know why I allow it. I have my reasons. And so, God, help us to have such a real experience of you and your goodness 
and your holiness and your love that this question doesn't trip us up too much. And God, I want to pray specifically for anyone in the room who says, man, I can't believe in, in, in you, God, because of this question I have. God, I ask that you would mightily reveal yourself to them. Open their eyes. Soften their hearts. God, they would even say, hey, if you're real, I want to know. So God, do something in their life. We need you to move in all of our lives, God. So soften our hearts. And Jesus, thank you for experiencing far more evil than I've ever experienced. Jesus, thank you for saving us through that mechanism somehow. God, we love you. We need you. Please reveal yourself more deeply to all of us. I just pray all that in your mighty holy name. Amen.